Good afternoon. Welcome Exponential. My name is Chad Clarkson. I serve as the director of the Houston Church Planning Network down in Houston and then get the opportunity to serve as your host today. Uh, I'd like to welcome you to today's webinar. We've been having a series of webinars around the together theme. So today we're talking about what unites us. We are the body of Christ, diverse in gifting, diverse in our context, diverse in our service, but we, we are united by our commitment to the Lord Jesus and his mission. So when we collaborate and work together, we become a fuller expression of the body of Christ, better able to communicate the Jesus mission. I'm joined today by our special guest, Daniel Yang. Uh, if you've been around church planning world, uh, you're probably familiar with Daniel. Uh, Daniel currently serves as the director of the SEND Institute, where he leads and oversees all of its initiatives. Uh, prior to serving the Institute, uh, he was planting a church up in Toronto, where he also helped assess, train, recruit planters through the SEND network and release initiative as well. Uh, he's also served on various church staffs, uh, including Northwood Church uh, there in, in Keller, Texas. Uh, and prior to, to church planning, Daniel, I didn't know this, that you were an engineer for eight years. Yeah, that's right. I was yeah. uh, in uh, technology and, and software for, for eight years. Fantastic. Well, great to see you again. It uh, seems like I've been running into you a lot. I know, right? Man, I've, uh, somebody's going to get me an apartment in Houston, I think, because hey. of the number of trips I'm making to Houston the fall. <laughs> on down. Yeah, I would love love having you and appreciate your voice. I was with uh, Houston Northwest last week and 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 Dan Moreau, who, who kind of oversees uh, a lot of their logistics, said, Hey, we've got your apartment ready ready for you. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. No, we love we love having you down here. So appreciate your investment, not only in the church and church planning, but specifically the the church in Houston. So we're grateful for you here. Yeah, a lot of friends down there, and, and you're you're definitely one of them, Chad. So thanks. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, all right, let's jump into some questions here. Uh, we'll get we'll get started. So at Exponential this year, uh, the theme uh, that you're aware of is together, the great collaboration. Uh, so we understand the Great Commission, Matthew 28. We believe in the Great Commandment, Mark 12. Uh, but we're talking about have we forgotten Jesus' challenge of the great collaboration uh, found really in uh, what some refer to as the Lord's Prayer uh, in John 17. This, this idea where we're to go in love and then do that together. So, Daniel, high-level question here. Uh, unpack for us why you think it's important uh, that we pursue Jesus' mission together. Yeah, you know, I'm really excited at this theme. I wish we can draw it out, you know, into 2022 because I just it's such a big theme. And I love how Exponential has been uh, unpacking it in the regionals, uh, you know, there in Houston in a couple of weeks. Uh, I, I actually think there's a lot of implication for cities like Houston um, because uh, of the diversity that Houston has. But let me backtrack a little bit because uh, when, when I'll be with you all in a couple of weeks, I'll actually talk about uh, some of the theological reasons for why uh, being together, doing mission together is so important. Um, and I, I think a big part of, uh, of that is to really understand again, like what was Jesus's intention? You mentioned Matthew 28. And I think we all grew up, we, we kind of know some version of the Great Commission. And we all understand that, like it's to make disciples of all nations. But I think the the cultural like worldview in the like paradigm for missions that we learned the Great Commission, like that that particular cultural construct of the Great Commission came from for, for most of us. I'm not gonna say for all of us, but for most of us, it came from like this North American mentality or European mentality of how do we cross, you know, um, land and sea and air so that we can reach exotic other people. And maybe that's not how all of us think about like the Great Commission anymore, but for a lot of people, that's still what they think when they think about like the Great Commission is us over here 
finding means and pathways to reach them over there. And it's kind of a unidirectional kind of understanding of the Great Commission. Um, And so even when we think about like, what does the Great Commission look like in our cities, especially in a city like Houston, which has been dubbed like North America's most diverse city. I I planted in Toronto, which has a very similar uh, uh, ethnic composition to, uh, to Houston. Between Houston and Toronto, those are the two most diverse cities, New York City, Miami. Uh, and maybe a few others, but uh, none as much as Toronto and Houston. But we will apply. We would apply kind of that that 18th century understanding of of uh, of the Great Commission. You know, us over here going to there to reach them. Sometimes we would even apply that in our own backyard. And I think if you pull back and really try to understand what Jesus is saying, and then to peek ahead and understand what happened in the first century church, I think we have a more holistic picture of what Jesus really meant. And we need to apply that and push that forward to our time today. Now, mind you, I'm not trying to give away my talk that I'm going to give in Houston in a couple of weeks, but I am setting a little bit of a backdrop for the implications. I'll talk more about the implications once we're in Houston. But, you know, we you you think about what Jesus was saying, you know, making disciples of all nations, what he was actually, I think, teasing out the imagination for the Jewish listeners that were listening to, to him, the 500 that were there present but specifically the, the 11 apostles that were there that would eventually he would, uh, you know, would take that and move forward with his great commission is he's actually speaking to them in a, a certain regards and saying this, this whole idea of like being God's people is no longer a Jewish idea. And when he's, when he is saying that, like make disciples of all nations, he's actually not just saying like, um, you know, make converts because Jesus was very clear already in Matthew 23 that the kingdom business was not about making converts to a religion. Like, I mean, he pronounced the seven woes, right? I mean, he, he was pronouncing the seven woes on the Pharisees and on the religious systems. And he was speaking that system down. It was a religious ethnic cultural system that he was trying to really deconstruct and uh, to really, uh, you know, uh, dismantle essentially the Pharisaic system that said, we over here are going to reach them over there. And so he's speaking to his disciples and he's saying it's, it really is not supposed to be a, a ethnic religious centric system. Making disciples of all nations embedded in that is Jesus saying the mission is for everybody. The mission is for everybody. And although it's starting with the 12, the mission is for everybody. So, I mean, just follow the narrative like Pentecost right from the get go. Pentecost happens. The mission is for everybody. And, you know, and the disciples, they didn't break out of that mindset. The mission was still based out of Jerusalem. And so you eventually get to Antioch where, where uh, the, the, the missions movement becomes global for the first time. So Jerusalem, although it had the decision-making power, the church wasn't really a global church until it got to Antioch. And it comes back to this idea. Jesus prayed about it in John 17, is that in order for us to be a, uh, an effective witness to the world, we have to show a certain level of practical unity that all of us re- reorient our cultural and our ethnic identities, not around our heritage so much. You know, I, again, I don't want to talk about, uh, I, don't, I don't want people to understand me saying that like cultural heritage isn't important. 
but we need to uh, be willing to cross those cultural boundaries and become a unit. And it's actually, it was in that process, you know, Rodney Starks writes about this in his book, The Rise of Christianity. He devotes a section of his book to the church in Antioch. And he actually says that because the, the, the disparate groups of people in Antioch began embracing Jesus and his mission uh, for the first time when they came together, they were so strange. There was no name to, they had no name because they weren't Jewish and they weren't followers of Judaism anymore, but they also weren't pagan people and they weren't following, you know, uh, Greek mythology anymore. They had become something new, something visible, something real in Antioch. They had no name for it. So for the first time, that group of people, they were called the Christians, right? And if you uh, trace back these things, like we're constantly reminded that we're living underneath the potential of what Jesus really set out to do, what Paul you know, was able to do in his lifetime, and that is to approach mission uh, from a united, uh, you know, standpoint. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll stop um, after making this point. We then have to ask the question, you know, what are all the levels of like diversity and complexity, whether that's denominational, you know, theological, you know, racial, ethnic, there's a lot of different like boundaries and tribal, you know, tribal divisions that we have to consider when we talk about being united. But I would say what we're navigating today is not very different from what the Apostle Paul and many others had to navigate in the first century church. That's really good. I'm taking some notes here. So sure. if I kind of go off a little bit, uh, just bring me back. That's, that's really good, Daniel. I look forward to uh, really hearing your talk uh, down here in Houston. Um, as, as you're talking, uh, if you're watching today, uh, feel free to, uh, if you have follow-up questions, feel free to put those in the chat and we'll try to get to as many as we can today. Uh, Daniel, another question for you, kind of along those lines, but just thinking local church, even before we talk, you know, collaboration between maybe people that aren't in our tribe, but how do you encourage and pursue unity just in your church where people have different giftings, different passions, um, different backgrounds? What does that look like? Yeah, you know this is such a this is such an interesting time for uh, local church leaders and pastors because, in some ways, the cultural tensions that we're experiencing seem to be tearing at the fabric of many of our churches. Not not all churches. A lot of churches are seeing a resurgence in like a united front, but a lot of churches are seeing a you know a cultural tensions within their their own, and um, and then with that like a. Um, a distrust towards church leadership, you know, um, I, I can probably tell you and Chad, you probably have similar stories of faithful women and men that have been leading churches that right now, um, they, they don't know if they have a, a, a church leadership or a congregation that's bought into the vision. And so I think when, when the uncertainty of like leadership, uh, when that's being put into question, then that actually exacerbates, you know, you know, but what about the individuals? And I, I want to do what I, you know, I want to be involved in justice. I want to be involved in, you know, uh, evangelism. And then, you know, there's kind of a, a, there's almost a polarization of how people even think about like, you know, um, methodology in missions and ministry at the local church level. And I think that this is actually a really crucial time for local church leaders to, to be empathetic listeners to what's actually at the heart of, you know, what, why people are, are, are being vocal about, like, especially, I would say, especially younger people who are just starting, starting to cut their teeth in ministry. Mm -hmm. 
and they think they have a certain gifting for a certain like kind of ministry, but they don't know if they actually fit the current paradigm of the church. Right. So, and, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, like I spent a lot of time uh, mentoring younger leaders that would say they're not necessarily anti-traditional church, but they're a little bit suspect that the way that they want to approach um, ministry and people don't quite uh, quite fit the current like uh, ministry models uh, and programs that most existing churches have. I don't think that's unworkable, but I think it comes back to the church leader and uh, saying like, what is our humble posture of reevaluation of how we think about um, uh, ministry at the local church level? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I come from a, a Baptistic like tradition. And so we have, you know, a saying of, you know, the priesthood of all believers, but what does that really mean? And I think every local church has to probably um, uh, right now revisit uh, what the apostle Paul talks about specifically in first Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, you know, this is coming out of the great chapter uh, that he talks about love, which, mind you, we all know is not about weddings, right? <laughs> it's about um, Christian community, how to love one another, right? So that's huge. You know, I, I, I should probably start there, but I'm going to fast forward to, to chapter 14. Because what Paul actually says, you know, and I hope this is not too controversial. I think you and I, uh, you know, we, 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 we might be okay with, with the charismatic gifts. Not everybody on this call is going to be. But if you're coming to Exponential 22, be ready because the theme is empowered. Uh, and so, but if you get to 14, what does Paul say is the most important gift? Right. He actually says that it's it's the prophetic gift. It's the gift of prophecy. And I want to I want to demystify that because um, sometimes we think the prophetic gift is just like really like a mystical idea that, you know, people hear direct revelation from God and they speak it as if it's scripture. And that's I don't even think that's what Paul meant. But Paul explains why the gift of prophecy is so important to the, to the church, specifically the local church, because he says it's the only gift that is, is built to, um, to encourage and to, um, uh, to console and to build up the body. Think about that. The gift of prophecy, whatever the definition, and Paul gives it a little bit later, but that particular gift is, is like a baseline gift. If we were to say, you know, I, I grew up in the inner city. So, you know, we used to say marijuana was a gateway drug to other drugs. And I don't know if that's true or not, but, um, but the prophecy, but the gift, the prophetic gift, the gift of prophecy, the really basic Paul said, that's a basic gift that is a gateway to the other gifts. And so, because it's there to encourage, to console and to build up the body of Christ. If we aren't practicing this basic gift of number one, love, because he's saying, you know, love is the most important out of faith, hope, and love. And then number two, his go to is prophecy and better understand that. Then it doesn't matter how gifted people feel in administration and in these other things. We actually don't have the basic mechanism that keeps the body together, united, so that then others can actually practice out what it is that they, they practice. So Paul says, um, in a sense, he thinks this is the most important gift. I wish that everybody, he says, would pursue this gift because it's the most basic gift. And let me explain why I think it's so important. Because in the way that the New Testament practices prophecy, you know, in some ways it's 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 similar but dissimilar to the old to the to the Old Testament. 
It's this basic idea that everybody hears from God. Like there's an agency in every believer that they actually have a relationship with God, the father, God, their father speaks to his daughters and sons, and he actually can tell them what to do. And the gift of prophecy like honors that, but it brings in a corporate dimension to that in that it, uh, Paul puts in the boundaries that there's, you know, there's uh, affirmations and there is accountability around that, that you don't just start going around speaking things like the Lord says, as a matter of fact, I think Paul would even discourage, you know, saying that this does say it, the Lord type um, prophet, um, uh, prophetic words. But he's saying that like the most basic understanding of spiritual gifts is this. We hear from God and because we hear from God, we should obey the things that we hear from God. Jesus says, I only do the things that I see the father doing. I only say the things that I hear the father saying. That's to me, the basic premise of gifting. And Paul says that if we only did this, if we, we did this better, if all of us would pursue this, then that actually puts the church at a better posture of then living out those individual gifts, which, you know, he then describes in other categories and whether it's evangelism and pastoring and administration, uh, you know, uh, words of knowledge, those kinds of things, those things now have a better foundation to be lived out. But if you don't have the basic mechanism, which encourages and consoles and builds up the body, then those other things are, are going to peter out because it needs to be connected to you know, the foundational gift. And so um, that's, again, that's kind of a biblical theological approach to it. But I think every pastor right now needs to get back to this idea of how do we actually honor the fact that God speaks to us, not just to our leaders, but to everybody. How do I become an empathetic leader in facilitating that so that everybody feels consoled, encouraged, built up so that they can practice the things that God's telling them to practice? Mm-hmm. That's really good. That's really good. I appreciate, appreciate those thoughts, Daniel. Um, kind of even going back to what you said, and there was even a comment in the, um, in the chat about hunger for learning right now, at the same time, seeing new models and traditional churches struggling. Uh, what do you say to someone who's like, you, you mentioned, you know, someone, maybe a younger leader that you're, you're investing in that feels like they don't fit. Like, is there any kind of words of wisdom you're passing along? Um, uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think that's a really important question because I think every generation has a point where they feel like they're Mm anti-establishment until they get to a certain age and they realize that they become the establishment. Right. So that's, that's like, that's not a new uh, cycle. I think everybody goes through that at least once in their life where they, they feel really edgy and really like, you know, um, uh, and then you realize that, you know, you become the man at some point. <laughs> um, so to back up a little bit, I, you know, from my work at the Sen Institute, which is to help church planting leaders, um, think better about church planting and we're thinking for church planting and we try to, you know, honor the best practices, but we also try to help people think about like what's kind of coming around the corner. And, um, I, I always say this, that we need, um, you know, uh, all kinds of churches for all kinds of people. Uh, within biblical boundaries, of course. Um, and then we also need more of everything. And so we need more, you know, what we would consider traditional models. Now, it's funny because the contemporary, you know, uh, the contemporary church, you know, the way that we now understand it as, you know, kind of more, I don't want to say attractional models, but the more contemporary, like that's now become the traditional model, you know, um, but uh, we need more of that because I still think that we have a lot of people that for them, for the time being, that's their understanding of church. And they're going to be 
more comfortable in that space. Just like a lot of Catholics, whether they're a devout Catholic or not, they still think Catholic spaces are the church. Um, so I'm not prepared to say by any means that the traditional church, the way that we think about the contemporary church needs to go away. But I do think that there are, um, are a lot of people that are uh, creating innovative models, innovative meaning that they aren't taking their cues from traditional contemporary churches. And they're trying to create like sustainable models. And so, you know, for instance, there are those who are leading networks of smaller churches that I think have, you know, in some ways proven that we've iterated beyond just independent house churches. And so there was for some time, you know, a swing against large uh, established churches. And that largely looked like a lot of smaller house churches that were independent. A lot of people found, and not all of them, okay, so I'm not uh, painting with a brush, uh, broad stroke, but a lot of people found that within smaller house churches, it was very hard to keep accountability. You can have a tyrant in a large church, you can have a tyrant in a small house church. So I think we've iterated beyond that, and we're seeing that there are networks of smaller churches that are working together, um, and that's an encouragement. You know, it's a it's an ecclesiology uh, that has come uh, at at the right time to help us have alternative ways to think about um, uh, church. But what I'm finding encouraging is that in those models, Chad, the um, the 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 core. Um, like foundational principle is not so much around like, how do we gather people, but how do we disciple and equip people to be out and engaging? It's more, you know, I mean, to borrow, you know, the term that was kind of really hot during the nineties and the two thousands, but it, it, people have tried to really for the last 10, 15 years, innovate a truly missional model of church. Um, and not just have, you know, uh, churches that meet in a home. And so that's, that's encouraging. So if you're a young leader and you're coming to me and you're saying, you know, I'm 25, 26, and I, you know, I don't know if I quite believe in the traditional church, I, I would say, you know, well, you know, understand how God is still using the traditional church, but whatever God's calling you to, don't do it in spite of that. Do it as somebody who is sent from and somebody who has um, a little bit of like, you know, permission from uh, those around you so that you can innovate. And so when you step into the innovative space, learn from those who are currently innovating. And there's a lot of examples of that. You know, some of the go-tos are going to be, you know, uh, Tampa Underground, both in uh, Tampa, the Underground in Tampa and K in Kansas City. Uh, there's a movement, uh, implied multi uh, multiplied imp uh, impact, multiplied up in the Seattle area. Um, there's a lot of networks that are uh, that are developing, you know, missional development, uh, developed leaders. Um, and so learn from those folks. And then when you develop whatever it is that you develop as your, you know, um, form or model of church, I, I hope and pray that you will like struggle tremendously with like, but is this Jesus's church? Because it doesn't work if it's an innovative model, but it's not really Jesus governed. And so everybody has to wrestle with, is this model of church really something that I'm governing, uh, you know, uh, or Jesus is governing? Because if it's not Jesus governing it, at some point, it's going to get wacky and wonky, um, just like every other model before that. And it'll be critiqued just like every other model before that. And so I would say, you know, um, you know, respect the tradition, learn from it, be sent from it, 
learn from the innovators um, and understand the current resources that are out there. But whatever you end up doing, making sure that it's Jesus's church and not yours. Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, I mean, just thinking of the bride of Christ. So, I mean, you don't want to have, you know, if you're talking about my wife, I'm going to be ticked off, right? So you think about that, you know, in terms of the bride of Christ, it's like, all right, if you're talking about an, uh, negatively about an aspect of the bride of Christ, then all right, you may need to check yourself a little bit. So um, that's, that's, that's right. Yeah. And you know, it's, and it's, it's important to have a little bit of like prophetic angst, I guess. I mean, yeah. I think all of us, you know, have that to a certain degree. Um, and that's why good mentors in your life will help you channel that, right. And give you perspective, you know, because every, every tradition and every institution started as a grassroots movement, large, you know, by and large. And so when you, when you study, like, let's say for instance, like probably one of the most recent in our lifetime is the Jesus people movement. Mm -hmm. You know, it was very grassroots. It was very, um, you know, evangelistically driven and it was, you know, a ministry, to, I would say, you know, one of the more like uh, misunderstood populations, you know, the hippies and stuff. And eventually, you know, the, the different streams of the movement became very uh, traditional. You, know, you have Calvary Chapel, the Vineyard, um, you know, a few others, um, you know, and so it's tempting to kind of look at like 2021 and say, oh, these are very institutional, you know, paradigms. But if you trace it back 50 years ago, no, these were the really grassroots evangelistic movements trying to be contextual. And I think that like, so you don't want to do away with the, like um, the, 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 the edginess of what God has put on your heart, but you want to put that in context and, and realize that, you know what, like I need to respect the shoulders that I stand on. And when I show honor where honor is given at some point, people will do the same. That's great. Appreciate that. And love what you were saying about the prophetic too. Um, when people ask me like, who are you listening to? Like I'm, I'm continually pointing them to the send Institute, you know, you, Christopherson, mm -hmm. Stetzer. I mean, I just appreciate, I feel like you guys have got a prophetic bent up there. Uh, just the way you're encouraging, uh, the church to think about future, think about the church, think about church planning. So really grateful for your, your guys work up there and ladies up there. So appreciate it. Um, let's move the conversation a little bit. So beyond just local church, let's thought, let's talk a little bit about uh, big C church a little bit. Uh, what are some reasons that we should, you know, if we're talking about this idea of what unites us, uh, what are some reasons that we should collaborate specifically with leaders that are not part of our own tribe? Yeah, it's so important. I mean, especially for um, leaders like yourself and I, Chad, that we work kind of at a um, in aggregation, like convening and uh, aggregating people in the city, you know, you at uh, ACPN and me with um, uh, Chicago Land Church Planning Alliance and other groups that I work with. Uh, there, there are several reasons. So let me give, I, you know, I would say earlier I gave a theological reason. Um, a lot of what I said can apply. Uh, the sociological reason for why you want to uh, collaborate. And let's say at the city level, um, uh, with people that are outside of your tribe. So let's say cross denominationally, uh, cross networks, uh, cross theologically, is sociologically is that I, people no longer have the uh, nuance. When I say people like uh, non Christians, those who aren't a part of the church they don't know how to nuance the difference between our different tribes. They just in general see splintered Christianity. And so, but they don't know why they just, they just know when they think of it, they think splintered Christianity. 
And so when, when you can do things as a collective, when you can do things as a coalition, you're constantly pushing against the narrative that Protestant Christianity and specifically evangelical specifically, um, and, and, you know, some people have pushed against uh, the usage of evangelicalism. And I think there's still some good usage of it. But when you unite under a more unified banner, you're actually helping to push against the, the social narrative that Christianity is splintered. And in some ways, it is an implicit apologetic to the city. And so, um, but if you show up to a thing and you, you come with your flag that you're waving in, then you actually live into the stereotype of what non-Christians already believe. So I think in that, that collective apologetic actually helps to sow the seed for um, how to do mission together in the city. So practically what that looks like is that when you have a church planter who let's say is, let's say they're a Methodist church planter, but they come in and they're in a, and they're planting in a, in a community that doesn't have a Methodist presence, but that community definitely needs more churches. But let's say the primary church that has been there the longest is a, a is a, is a Baptist church. Um, if you have an existing coalition of churches or a collaboration of churches working across denominational tribal lines, that planter will come in and, you know, there, there is going to be a, you know, a, a, a greater likelihood that, uh, she or he will be welcomed by the existing churches there because you have longstanding relationships in your coalition. It makes it easier for that church planter to say, hey, can we borrow your building? Hey, can we, um, uh, you know, um, and so there's, you know, you're not worried about like, oh, are they, they're going to take people from our church. Like you kind of handle that on the front end. So when planters come in, um, that some of that stuff is already taken care of. It doesn't eliminate all those conversations, but it, what it does is it actually creates pathways to have those conversations. When I planted in Toronto because of the existing, and it was much more grassroots, it wasn't as explicit as what you guys have done in Houston and what we're doing in Chicago, but because the, uh, the leaders of the Toronto Church Planning Network at the time had been working across the board with Presbyterians and Methodists, uh, Episcopalians, Ang well, Anglicans in Canada, um, when we came in, it was so easy for them to say, Hey, you know what you're planting in downtown Toronto. Here's Dan McDonald, who's with the PCA, um, uh, the, the, the Presbyterians and Dan became really an immediate mentor for us in that particular community. Like those are the things that I think we want to see happen, uh, because we, we need that level of, um, you know, it, it takes a city, it takes a city of leaders to raise a church planner is what I say. Yeah, and um, that really is what we, and that's what we can provide for them. If we don't do that, implicitly, what we're teaching church planters is to be tribal as they plant their churches. And they may be able to grow one large church, but at some point, all the other churches will look at them as this like weird thing. We don't know if we can quite work with them. And uh, if we don't solve that at the, at the leadership level, then planters will inherit that. Yeah, that's a great word. Um, even on that apologetics, I think it was Francis Schaeffer said, the, you know, the greatest apologetic for evangelism is the oneness of Christians. Yeah. Uh, so just get into what, what you're saying there. And even really, I mean, it's Jesus and John. 17, it's right? John 17, right? Yeah, there you go. So, <laughs> so that the world may know uh, mm -hmm. that you sent me and that you love them uh, because of our oneness, uh, mm -hmm. because of the church's oneness. So, yeah, great. Um, so those that are, maybe they're, all right, their heart's there for collaboration. They're like, all right, I'm all in. What are some, maybe some next steps uh, that they, maybe it's going to help move them from, all right, I understand John 17, but how do I move from theory to practice around this idea of togetherness? 
Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of tell the story of what we're doing here. Uh, first of all, I'd say, Hey, you know, read, uh, read the book that Bruce Wesley put out, who <laughs> co-founded uh, Houston church planning network with uh, Chad Clarkson. And, uh, and that's a pretty good primer. Uh, Cause he tells a story and I think, uh, you know, it's not a prescription, but it's a description of how one city did it. Um, you know, again, I can tell you a similar story here that we've tried to do here in Chicagoland. Um, but I, I would say, um, 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 as a matter of principle, as a, let's just say, I'm going to make it real, real kind of like, uh, uh, practical. If you are a pastor of a church, your, your primary responsibility definitely is number one to God number two, your family, and then number three, the people that are in front of you. Mm -hmm. But I think every pastor should consider tithing 10% of their time to things outside of their church, you know? And as you have more bandwidth, then consider increasing that. And so 10% of your time, you know, um, I, I would say, you know, if you can do that evangelistically, meaning like, you know, serve some kind of board, your board of education or something like that, that's awesome. But if you can increase your bandwidth, then also, you know, uh, choose to serve in a capacity um, outside of your local church that's going to benefit other churches and other groups. And so sometimes what that means is that you agree to show up at the monthly pastors uh, thing that the city does. And, you know, uh, you know, that's less than tithing your time because that's usually one hour a month or something like that. But then, you know, once you're doing that, then begin to ask the question, you know, what is happening at the city level or the regional level that I think, you know, my current giftings and the gifting of our church that we can contribute towards. You might not be able to be the one that's primarily convening other people, but you might be the ones that can be a little bit of a liaison between your tribe and this other group. Mm -hmm. And for, for a lot of people, that's at least, um, that's one of the, the, the least uh, ways that they can help is to kind of be that liaison between their tribe and the larger collaboration. But as you grow in your experience and you, and here's the thing, here's the key. You want to accumulate experiences with other people because uh, networks and collaboration work best uh, with strategies or with, with, with relationships. Relationship is your strategy. And so you need to accumulate a lot of uh, experiences. And if you don't have experiences, it's hard to really talk about vision and strategy. And so once you accumulate a certain level of, um, you know, relational equity with uh, other pastors and other groups, then you can begin to really ask some of the more strategic questions. And so I think, you know, um, it's, it's, it's really heart and hand. Those are the things that really uh, help direct, you know, collaboration that's effective and that's meaningful. And then, you know, so first is again, you know, tithe some of your time. Secondly is accrue, you know, um, experiences so that you can develop uh, relational equity. And then third is then to begin asking, how do you build into your church's rhythm, um, uh, how to be, you know, consistently involved in larger initiatives? Because, because at that point, if you don't, build it in to the way that you do business and ministry at some point, it'll just be what the pastor does. And it's not what the church does. So you have to kind of find that pathway back into your church and you're explaining to him, this is why we belong to this particular network in our city, because it helps us in this particular way. And, uh, but you can only get to that point if you actually have real relations, uh, relationships with other people. Right on. Yeah. I, th I think what you're saying is proven true, definitely in our experience uh, here in Houston, uh, both on the 
right, you got to make collaboration a priority. Uh, so I think we've seen that with pastors here in Houston, especially, you know, our pastor here, Bruce Wesley, uh, the church I'm, I serve at, he, he designates about 20% of his time. Now it's kind of grown over time. Obviously he couldn't do that when he planted the church. Mm -hmm. uh, but now the elders have released him to say, all right, you know, there's a bigger mission vision going on. So, you know, you, some of your time is released. Uh, and then like, like you said, the strategy piece, you know, how is this working into our church's rhythm? Uh, mm -hmm. cause I think churches, you know, all right, you may have a discipleship strategy. Here's our leadership strategy. Uh, but I can't point to too many churches that say, all right, here's our collaboration strategy. Yeah. Here's what that looks like. So, uh, so yeah, just encouraging uh, to hear you say, you know, how does this work into our rhythm as a church? Mm -hmm. All right. A couple more questions for you, Daniel, sure. a few minutes left. Um, a lot of people will nod their heads and agree, all right, we should pursue unity, uh, but inevitably uh, things are going to derail our plans, right? Uh, or, you know, what, so, you know, maybe it's like, oh, I tried that one time, you know, it didn't work for us. Uh, what do you think some of the top barriers to unity are? And maybe then how do we overcome those? Yeah, man, I, um, this is, um, you know, uh, Chad, you and I, we spent uh, a couple of days together here in Chicago and we talked about barriers to collaboration. And I think, uh, instinctively, most of us inherit some of these barriers. So I would say, uh, uh, in principle, a lot of the barriers, they are practical, but they're, they're, they're a mindset as well, because they were handed down to us. So what I mean by that is that, uh, I remember as a kid, I'm just, this is an antidote. So this is just kind of me, uh, kind of giving, uh, a metaphor, but I remember as a kid, I grew up in a denomination that um, was, I, I wouldn't say it was fundamentalist, but it was um, very traditional, very traditional. And so, uh, and this is probably not unlike many of you. Um, and uh, so we, we were very slow to do contemporary worship music. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, we were very uh, anti-charismatic. And so um, I, I have sat under a lot of pastors who would tell me things like um, raising our hands uh, was, was bad. The drums, like, I mean, okay, so I'm, I'm not telling anybody anything new, right? Some of us grew up in this tradition. You know, we had reasons that drums were evil because they were created from the jungles of Africa and that they were used for voodoo and stuff like that, you know? Um, and so, uh, and then also like, we, we don't, uh, we don't, uh, just all these crazy myths, like, you know, um, Pentecostals don't, don't disciple people. So we don't work with the, you know, Pentecostals. And so we inherit these things and they're almost kind of like, you know, it's kind of like that old, you know, illustration, like this is how grandma cooked the Turkey. She just always cut the legs off, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, uh, the reality is that she did it because she didn't have a pot big enough for the whole entire Turkey. That's why she cut the legs off. And I think a lot of our barriers that we inherit are, like that, that their mindsets that were given to us. We don't do things that way. And because 40 years ago, there was some kind of schism, there was some kind of tension, something like that. And I think that um, if we can do some self-examination and saying, what are those mental barriers that actually keep us from working with others? That That's some homework. That's some real homework. And that's probably some internal discussion first. I do think theological issues are very important. I think uh, you need to have your theological distinctions. You know, as a Baptist, I'm not trying to argue anybody into, you know, not doing pedal baptism. Uh, you know, but I will ask the question, you know, those who do pedo baptism, how do I, you know, strategically partner with you in helping to further your mission? And likewise, are there ways in which you can partner with me 
to help us further our mission. And I think that it's important to understand that. Now, uh, let me get to the brass tacks of this. The, the One of the most uh, difficult practical issues that organizations are, are coming around and they find difficult to work with other groups is around the issue of ordaining uh, open, you know, uh, uh, openly gay clergy. Like, I mean, that, that is becoming more and more of an issue um, and uh, within evangelical circles as well, right? Uh, it's not a mainline issue only. It's also now becoming an evangelical issue. And I think that that, that is a, a practical thing where like, you have to really ask yourself the question, what is your theological core? And, what, um, and are those the things that you, you know, what's the centered set? And very many people within our evangelical circles are defining themselves uh, as, you know, um, you know, as that, as that issue as being a part of their centered set. And you have to be okay with that, you know, and you have to be okay to be able to explain that to those that you don't partner with that, you know, uh, this issue is a centered set, you know, women in ministry might not be a part of that. Uh, The charismatic gifts might not be a part of that. But for us, um, you know, and I, I can tell you, you know, three or four networks that you all know that they've made it a part of their centered set, that this is their stance and, and it's and they will not partner with other organizations that have a different stance on that. But you have to know that's a part of that is knowing yourself. But even outside of the theological, you know, barriers, there's the practical barriers. Do we give money to other groups? You know, do we give? And I, I love the way that you all have done it because you all have developed a, in a sense, almost like a clearinghouse model where you're you're contributing to a shared resource. And I think that's a very uh, important way to develop, um, you know, alternative ways for people to financially partner towards a collaboration where you have a trusted, you know, uh, uh, clearinghouse in a sense that that money can be distributed for the purposes of the shared mission around that particular group. I think that helps to overcome some of the, you know, um, you know, barriers to financial giving, because for a lot of people, they can give towards a category in, in our tradition, we would say, I can give towards a great commission cause. And so if I were to give towards Houston church planting network, which if you're in Houston, I, I would advocate that, that that could fulfill in some ways, part of your great commission giving. Um, and that's a way to kind of think through that. And then probably the third thing that most people um, find to be a barrier is just time. You know, it's like, I just practically, you know, I'm pastoring a church of 120 people. I don't know if I can give any more bandwidth and it comes back to, it's like tithing money. Like, okay. I tell you know, we all do this in our new believers congregation. We're not asking you to give 10% right off the bat. We're asking you to know and love Jesus more. And that's the most important thing. But as you contribute towards the mission of the church, can you start with 1%? So pastor, we're not asking you to give your life to the cause of, you know, uh, city reaching in your, in your church, but as you learn to love Jesus's vision for your city, can you tithe 1% of your time? And then as you continue to grow in your love and the practicality of like your time, can you increase that to two, three, 4% of your time? And I think, you know, that incremental uh, giving of yourself in time uh, as a pastor is one of the practical ways through that time barrier. Yeah. Yeah. We started in Houston, kind of get buckets for different churches. Like, all right, we want everybody to have a chance to play, right? I mean, you're in the game, get in the mm-hmm. sandbox. All right, we're all in play together. Everybody's got a different role, but even identify churches is like, all right, you're a network church, you're a partner church, you're an anchor church, you're going to have different roles, different responsibilities, uh, but we want everybody to have a, a voice in, in moving uh, collaboration forward in the city. So, yeah, absolutely. 
uh, Daniel, what, what uh, opportunities are you seeing for kingdom multiplication in your context? Mm. I know you're involved in the prodigal network. I'd love to hear a little bit about that if that fits the question, but sure. what, are, what are you currently seeing? Yeah. Well, Chad, I mean, boy, for me, I'm a little bit of a futurist and an explorer. Um, so uh, I'm taking this as a personal question for what you just asked. So, um, and it's probably helpful to kind of know a little bit more about my bent. Uh, so I, I tend to be a futurist, um, a strategist. Um, and so for me, I realize that like what God has called me to do, I probably will not see the outcome of it. Mm. And I'm, I, I become okay with that. Mm. And as much as I want to make me sound like that's special and unique to me, I know that's not, I think God's calling a lot of leaders into that role. As a matter of fact, um, uh, you know, I feel like there's, um, a, 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 a large percentage of us that we feel like we have been called into, being a door holder for the next wave of leaders that are going to come into mission. And we're almost kind of careful in the way that we talk about mission, because if we talk about it in a way that's too prescriptive, then it actually can douse the potential and the energy that an emerging generation of leaders can, can reimagine mission for their context and their time. You know, that's not to say that we don't have anything to teach the next generation. And I'm 41, mind you. So either some people think that's too old. Some people think that's really young, but that's why I feel like I'm probably a part of this like door holding generation. And so for me, a big part of my uh, assignment, I believe is to create spaces so that younger people can reimagine mission for their generation and create vehicles for mission. And to help leaders at our level for you and I, you know, uh, that are leading networks, denominations to consider creating space like that in their organization. Um, because if we don't, what we end up doing is we put Saul's armor on the next generation. And, um, I, I don't, I don't know if they will want to lead, you know, um, in the same way. And so, you mentioned the prodigal network, which is, um, yeah, that's our, that's our, our church and our church planting, um, uh, our church plant here in Chicago. When I say us, my family and some of the young couples that we, uh, uh, are mentoring, it's a small work right now. And it's not dissimilar to some of the other networks of, uh, micro churches, missional communities. Although I feel like we have a bit more of a kind of traditional polity, um, compared to some of the other ones, but, but the basic premise behind that is what if we just put the task and the burden of mission on younger people and allowed them to really think through by coaching and mentoring them what church and mission might look like um, in our context. And so it's creating a framework, it's creating an infrastructure, it's creating a platform for younger people to imagine mission and to hear mission and to process Jesus um, and how Jesus might want them to lead mission. And um, so I think uh, to me, my biggest encouragement to uh, organizations and to denominations and networks is to consider creating spaces like that. These are probably not going to be your uh, launch large, you know, um, sustainable churches that will, uh, you know, run 100, 200, uh, you know, after a couple of years. But I think what I hope we can do is to unleash the imagination of a 
of a emerging generation that number one loves Jesus and number two loves Jesus's bride. And it feels less hindered by our institutional organizations so that they can create something that if best fits their, their, their generation and uh, really is a, you know, is more reflective of the direction that Jesus wants us to go. And so I think in some ways, those are the opportunities. So when I talk to groups, I feel like most of my energy and most of my intention is I hope that you guys will create space for young people to innovate missions for the future. And I think that's the opportunity for all of us. That's great. I think you, uh, Exponential had a couple of years ago, that hero maker theme. Uh, yeah. which I think you just, unpa- I mean, the, my kids make fun of me when I still wear that t-shirt, the hero maker, but I mean, that's, I think that's what you're describing there. You yeah. Know, how do we yeah. help? Right. And, and, you know, and every generation has done that for the next generation. So it's, it's not anything new, but I think for most of us that are daily in the grind of maintaining and tweaking our systems, we forget that part of our responsibility is to create not like a weird appendage, but to create as a part of our cultural like values that no, a part of this, we need to break off and hand off to the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. Last question for you. Uh, sure. We're about out of time. It's, it's went fast. So I appreciate uh, all your insights. So, uh, and you may have referenced this a little bit, kind of how you started today, but you're part of our main uh, stage speaker lineup for the Houston Exponential Regional Conference on October 26th and 27th. So excited to have you down here. What's one thing that you're going to hope leaders are going to take away from your talk? Yeah, man, uh, Chad, I, I, I love that I get to speak at the uh, Houston one. Um, I hope to put an urgency in you all as, um, as those who would lead the way in North America on how to develop a city-based theology for working together and being basically like, what is, what's the new Antioch of North America? Like if we were to, if we were to go from, we had operated from a predominantly Jerusalem model of mission and sending to now let's be an Antioch model. My hope in prayer is that uh, when I'm with you all, that I can create an urgency and saying, if you all don't do it, who else is going to do it? Hmm. If cities like Houston and I, to a larger degree, cities like Houston uh, and a few others in, in, in North America, if you aren't the ones willing to innovate and create those spaces um, that starts, you start off as a theological community, just like the church in Antioch was a theological community. They had to re-understand their ethnic identity um, and uh, social identity based around Jesus. And the mission flowed for that. <clears throat> if you all don't take that assignment seriously in Houston, I don't know if the rest of the United States has a, has a fighting chance. And so what I'm hoping to do is to number one, just uh, really share from scripture. And then number two, give an imagination for how you all can be in doing that. That's great. Looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah. So if you want to join uh, Daniel and myself uh, down in Houston, we'd love to have you. Uh, so again, the dates are October 26th, 27th. Uh, you can sign up and register or find out more information at exponential.org. Uh, slash events. Uh, Daniel's also going to be doing, a, we're actually doing a breakout together in Equipping Lab uh, early on collaboration. So looking forward to that. Uh, but in, additional, in addition, uh, Daniel's going to be our special guest for an exclusive breakfast on day two for those that uh, are bringing a group of five to 10. So for those leaders specifically, uh, it's going to do a breakfast on, on day two. So hey, I, know I'm coming do- down to, I know I'm coming down to Texas, but my diet's changed. So make sure what you get open. Let me know what you want. Make sure you got oatmeal at least. Okay. All right. We'll (laughs) we'll mark an oatmeal for you. Uh, But we'll have donuts and other stuff for anybody who doesn't want the the oatmeal or some good kolaches that are, I think, a Texas thing. So, 
Daniel, thanks again for today. And if you're with us today, uh, thanks for joining us. Again, I encourage you to check out exponential.org events. Join us here in Houston or one of the other regionals uh, around that are happening around the country. Thanks and have a great day.